All right, well, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to follow along on a blue pew Bible you can find in front of you. Uh, 1 Timothy 4 can be found on page 992. And hey, a reminder, if, if you would like a Bible, you can take that one home with you. You don't have to put it back in the pew. So if you would like a Bible at home, don't have one, or, or, or would like to have this one, you, you are free to take that um, and, uh, and bring it home with you. We would, we would actually love that. Um, but this morning, we've returned back to this book, 1 Timothy, and we began preaching through it uh, back in January, verse by verse, and then we took a one-month break uh, to have our Easter series, which we call The New Story, and now we are back. And I do find it fitting, uh, you could even say providential, that Ben's first Sunday and Ben's installation here at Grace Church as a pastor is very much aligned with this return to our series in 1 Timothy. Um, and that's because, as, as we had seen, that this book is really, at its core, uh, a book that speaks about the nature and mission of the local church. And um, one thing that we've kind of been circling around over those first few months and through the first three chapters is that um, a church that believes in the true gospel will lead to showing visible godliness, right? True belief shapes behavior, and, and the true gospel will lead to a visible uh, godliness amongst God's people uh, and really fuel them in building up one another in the faith and then together providing this compelling witness to the world, this kind of inside strengthening and then, and then also inside partnering to go live on mission in the world. And this is what Grace Church is called to. It's what the church at Ephesus was called to. Uh, but Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus because the church there was not faithfully living out its calling. There was a lot of issues and struggles happening there. And what we saw throughout the beginning of the letter is that the foundational issue, probably not the only issue, but the foundational issue was with the leadership. It was the church's leadership, its pastors and its elders that were uh, the problem. And at the core of their problem is that they were teaching a different gospel, which we know is really no gospel at all. And the gospel that they were teaching and they had kind of drifted into was elevating this salvation by human works and therefore diminishing salvation by God's grace, which is the only way to be saved. And so Paul called Timothy to exhort the church to raise up and commission new leaders. In chapter 1, we know of at least two elders that were essentially kicked out of the church. And it's probably uh, not a far cry to assume that there was many other leaders that were uh, either needed to be removed or replaced or, or discipled. And so therefore, new leadership needed to emerge in this church. Which is why in chapter 3, we spent a lot of time looking at the qualifications for elders and for pastors. And those offices are interchangeable in the New Testament. The word for pastor and for elder are used interchangeable. That, that is one office, a shared office. And then there was the passage after, which gave the qualifications for deacons. And deacons, those being ministry leaders that will be serving under the authority of the pastors and the elders. Um, so that, that, that's, again, where we kind of left things off. It's a joy to install Ben as a pastor here at Grace. And I hope we understand, uh, especially now going through 1 Timothy, the magnitude of that decision. And the magnitude of what just happened here in that installation. And, and having the opportunity to serve with the advisory team uh, really since last August, um, I can say with full assurance that first and foremost, our time with Ben was to, uh, through God's help and wisdom and guidance, to evaluate, is he qualified for pastoral ministry? 
and first and foremost, in his character. Because if you were here for those sermons in 1 Timothy 3, we saw that the majority of the qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3 were not ones of gifting or charisma or competence or how much uh, people like them or drawn to them in their personality, but, but their character. Is this man qualified in his character? And then, sure, beyond that, does he have a gifting? Is there a competence? Is, is, there, is there a capacity that we feel like he would come and be able to serve well here? And so I can say with full assurance uh, that hopefully that this is a sign of it this morning, that uh, the advisory team is excited uh, and, and for him and him coming, first and foremost, because of his character. And he's qualified in his character, and Lord will use him now as a pastor here. And so as we turn to chapter 4, and we begin the back half of this letter in 1 Timothy, Paul's going to show us a reason why. Why is it important that churches have qualified, healthy leaders? We're going to find a reason. So with that said, let's go to the text. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So here's the question hovering over us this morning. Ben, on your first Sunday at Grace Church, why do qualified, healthy leaders matter in the local church? There's a lot of reasons. We could talk a lot about that. But this morning, again, the passage that we're up, the next passage that we're up to in the series gives us one big reason. Here it is, up front. Qualified, healthy leaders matter because they are to be used by God to keep you from departing the faith. Qualified, healthy leaders in a local church will be used by God to keep you from departing the faith. And so we're going to break that up into three sections here. We're going to, in this passage, starting with number one, we see the threat of apostasy. And we'll unpack this, but number one, the threat of apostasy. This passage might seem a little confusing uh, when you hear it or read it at first. Um, Paul's transitioning from chapter 3, where he went through all the, again, qualifications the church in Ephesus needs to see in its leaders. And at the end of chapter 3, do you remember, there's a mini creed. If your Bible's still open, you can look back. It's kind of like in verse form, the end of chapter 3. It's a mini creed that many think that kind of local churches in the area kind of memorized together and would proclaim together, uplifting the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who was revealed as the means through which God would save, the means through which God would redeem his people through faith. Like a high ending at the end of chapter 3. And then he starts chapter 4 with this, now. Transition. Now, the Spirit says in later times, some will depart the faith. Thanks for the high note, Paul, and the quick transition. He gave you one word, now. Some are going to leave. Some are going to walk away. And when Paul says, later times, he's referring to the time period between Jesus' ascension to heaven after he rose from the dead and Jesus' return in his second coming. That's the later times. 
after he ascends to heaven, go to the right hand of the Father, and before he returns in glory. Um, Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul and other writers will also use phrases like the last days or the end of days, and they all mean the same thing. This is the era of the church. This is where Jesus has already come and broken the curse of sin and death by dying on the cross and being raised to new life, what we celebrated two weeks ago on Easter. But he has not yet brought in God's kingdom in its fullness. It's the already, not yet. He has already come and broken the curse. He has not yet returned to bring in God's kingdom in its fullness. And that in-between is the era that Ephesus was in. That in-between is the era we are still in. This time period that he's specifically talking about is the time period that Grace Church operates in. It is the last days, meaning the last chapter of God's story of redemptive history. We're in it. And in these days, Paul says, clearly, soberly, some are going to depart the faith. And the word for that is apostasy. Apostasy is the decisive turning away from the faith. There is one who at one point claimed to be a Christian, claimed to be aligned with faithful Christian teaching, and has now abandoned or departed from it. All right, so we got to talk about this. Does apostasy mean you can lose your salvation? Is that what Paul is saying here? That in later times, there will be Christians who then will walk away and they'll no longer be Christians. Is this saying that you can lose your salvation? Pastor, don't we believe in the assurance of the perseverance in the faith? Haven't we talked about that often, that no one can lose their salvation? Uh, Pastor, didn't Jesus say in John chapter 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand? Yes, we have. And yes, Jesus did. Which is why Paul is not talking about true Christians losing their salvation here. Hang with me. He is saying some who once claimed to be a Christian or once claimed to align with Christian teaching have now departed from that claim. Departed from that faithful claim and that teaching. So what that means is that they appeared to be saved. They appeared to be saved before other people, maybe even to themselves. But what has been revealed is that they were never truly saved. They appeared to be saved, but they were never truly saved to begin with. Uh, There's another letter near the end of the Bible called 1 John. It was written about 30 years after this letter. It's some of the last epistles to be written. John, in his older age, says it like this. I'm going to have it on the screen because he says all that very concisely. So hear this. John says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And I want to keep it on there just for a moment on the screen because that's one where you kind of read and you've got to read it again. If they had been of us, meaning if they had been of the faith, true faith, they would have continued. So in the context of this letter, Paul's writing to Timothy about a specific church in Ephesus. He's referring here still to the leaders and the primary teachers of the church in Ephesus who have departed from sound teaching. 
They've departed from preaching the real gospel, so now they're leading others astray as well. So here's the really scary thing about it. Here's the thing that should sit us up a little bit. They haven't departed the church, but they have departed the faith. That's scary. They still claim to be Christians by name, but they ascribe to and are promoting a different gospel, which we said earlier, a different gospel proves to be no gospel at all. So they didn't walk away saying, I'm not a Christian anymore. No, they're holding on to their claim of faith. They're holding on to their position in the church. They're holding on to their teaching, but they are preaching a gospel that has no power to save. They are putting people onto roads that lead to nowhere. You ever been on a road that leads to nowhere? It's a devastating feeling the moment you find out this road I've been on leads nowhere. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, um, the Spirit of God told us this was going to happen. He tells us so that we're not caught off guard when we see it happening, because it's hard when you see it happening. And so even though it's hard, you should not be shocked by it. The Spirit told us this was going to happen. Uh, we don't know exactly what passage or what he's referring to when he says that, but we do know Jesus himself in Matthew 24 said something similar. This will also be on the screen. Matthew 24, verses 10 and 11. Speaking of these quote-unquote later times, he says, and then many, he says many, will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Do you see it? Many Many. It's going to happen. In fact, we saw this earlier in this series, but I want to show us again. About five years before Paul writes this letter to Timothy uh, in Ephesus, um, Luke recorded in the book of Acts what Paul said to the elders of Ephesus before he left. So Paul planted this church. He started this church in Ephesus. He was there about three years, raising up leaders. And then in Acts 20, we have his final words to them. He's saying goodbye to them. They're, they're, he's about to leave, and he knows he probably won't come back. And he says uh, in this act, many things in Acts 20 in his final speech, but including this, Acts 20, verse 29 to 30. I know... That after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So now, five years later, Paul is saying, and I'm sure he's grieved as he writes it. He's saying, don't be surprised at this, Timothy. We knew this could happen. So rather, don't be surprised and caught off guard but now raise up pastors and elders who will defend against it. The churches need pastors and elders who will defend against this in themselves and in their church. And so, so I think about the leadership here at Grace Church that Ben is joining the ranks of this morning as we install him. And what this church is charging Ben with is the commission to help shepherd, to pastor, and to lead this congregation which involves, as good shepherding does, fending off false teachings that will come and lead people astray. That in his own heart and mind, he is fending off the, the threat of false teaching arising in his own heart. And to be charged with a pretty big job of the content and the leadership of all the adult ministries here at Grace, of not just he himself, but as he oversees all those across our groups and our classes in our discipling relationships that are, that are being tasked with the, the, the fact that truth is being proclaimed here. That he's waking up every morning thinking about this calling, this specific and joyful responsibility he's been given and that he's been gifted with. 
by God to lead well at Grace Church and to join the ranks of those who are. And one thing I can just say about Ben and just, um, again, in the dating and engagement phase, as you said about where we all put our best foot forward, no problems here at Grace Church, Ben. We're all good. Um, and, and, but, but what I have seen genuinely come through, that is a man who yearns to see you grow and will wake up each day thinking about how God will lead him to help you grow. We don't just want you to be here. We want you to grow here. Or again, you'd be able to look back at your time in Grace Church and say that God has used this man to help me grow in my faith, to grow in my affections and my knowledge of Jesus Christ, to grow in my security of Christ, which he has said that, that you can wake up with this assurance and security, especially a passage like this, knowing that some will depart, that you can have real assurance that you're secure in Christ. That's big. And that will happen through the regular, faithful teaching and living out of the truth of the gospel in his life and in the ministry he oversees. So while Paul says, don't be surprised, I do just want to pause here and, 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 and clarify. He doesn't say, don't be grieved by those who depart the faith. It is hard to see men and women who at one time professed faith in Christ, perhaps grew up in the church, professed belief in the gospel, uh, seem to show fruit in their life, then be led astray to believe in something else. Um, others might still, maybe they'll deny the word Christian altogether and say, I'm no longer a Christian. Uh, maybe they will still profess to be Christians, but the content of their belief and the evidence of their lives show the opposite, and it's very disorienting. And, and so here's what I know. As I talk about a topic like this and I look across the congregation, I know that at this moment, you're not thinking about just theological definitions. You're not just thinking about the nuances of the text. You're thinking about people right now. People coming to mind who once were and maybe still are close to you in your life, and they at one time were in lockstep with you in the faith. Maybe they even led you to the faith. And now they've departed. It's okay to say that can mess you up. That, that, that can be confusing. That can be really disorienting as you walk in your own journey. And I grieve to think of the many men and women who, again, grew up in the church. I can like, pinpoint moments. They spoke so clearly of the gospel. They showed what seemed to be such good evidence of the faith in their life, and now nothing. And so a question arises in my mind. How is that possible? What can we do? Well, just before we go to the second point, um, on our website, we, we have an archive of blog posts. And so we have a new blog platform on Substack, but then on our website, we also have an archive of all the posts and articles that we hosted on our website that you can still find. Um, in March 2019, to show you that this is not just a new concern, March 2019, I wrote an article based upon how many people I was talking with in Grace Church called this, Four Ways to Relate to Those Who Walked Away. Four ways to relate to those who have walked away. If that interests you, I would encourage you to go on our website and find it. But let me just quickly list them out and then we'll move on. Number one, pray for them. Don't sleep on the power of prayer in the lives of those who have departed the faith. Number two, listen to them. Don't assume you know why. Don't paint them with a broad brush. Listen to them, their story, their pains what went behind their decision. Number three, encourage them. 
And I mean the strong version of that word, not the overused view of encourage, like give courage. Have the courage to give courage in your words. Encourage them. And then number four, entrust them to the Lord. You can be grieved and be called to speak into their lives, but that's not a decision that has been given you as a burden to bear. Entrust them to the Lord. So if that interests you, maybe go find that article. We've got to keep going this morning. We saw the threat of apostasy. Now, number two, the reasons for apostasy. What are the reasons for apostasy? Well, all departure from the faith is rooted in bad theology. All departure from the faith is rooted in bad theology, uh, a false teaching that causes one to drift. And it always starts as a drift. It's very rare that you see someone be on fire for the Lord, claim faith in the Lord, and then the next week go, I'm out. It's always a drift. And there's a false teaching that they're grabbing hold on to, and they're drifting, and they're drifting before they are swept away by a riptide of false truth. Paul writes in verse 1, all, feach, all false teaching is demonic. Uh, maybe you read that at first, you're like, it's a little strong, Paul. That, that might sound a little dramatic at first, but it's not. The enemy will do everything he can to keep you from seeing the light of the beauty of Christ. And he doesn't care what you believe as long as it's not the truth that saves in fact, he'd probably prefer that you don't see false teaching as demonic because you'd probably be more likely to drift into it. In fact, I believe the false teaching that the enemy loves most are the ones that occur in churches by people who profess to be believers. And people go, well, he's a pastor. He's got a degree. He studies the Bible more than I do. I've got to believe him. Over the last 2,000 years, we've seen the evidence play out. The most dangerous false gospels are the ones that are closest to the truth. Uh, one, one of the commentators that I was reading this week said that the most effective false teaching finds some truth to hide behind. I love the way that's worded. That the most effective false teaching find a little bit of truth to hide behind. It's like counterfeit money, right? Nobody gets tricked by monopoly money, trying to give that to the store. Like, nobody's falling for that. But the most dangerous versions of fake money are the ones that look closest to the real thing. But they're worthless. In verse 2, Paul writes that all false teaching is given through human false teachers. And these leaders in the church in Ephesus knew full well what they were doing. That's why Paul says that they were not innocently mistaken, they were willfully misleading. These false teachers were not innocently mistaken, they were willfully misleading. The insincerity of liars, but their consciences have been so seared, meaning they don't even feel guilty about it. In fact, they are gladly misleading people. In fact, what's probably most scary about it is that they think they're doing the right thing. They think they're doing the Lord's work. Their consciences have been seared. And then we get a little more insight into the, what's called the Ephesian heresy. Uh, we kind of had to put bits and pieces together. We heard bits in chapter 1. What was the heresy in Ephesus that was, they were promoting? We got bits in chapter 1. Now we get a little bit more in chapter 4. And the heresy is a form of what we know as um, aestheticism. I can't say that word. I literally put it on the screen. We can put that word on the screen because I can't say it. All right? But you can see it. Aestheticism. <laughs> it's a terrible theology and it's a terrible word. All right? But it is the theology of self-denial of things in this world in order to gain a higher spiritual plane. 
a radical self-denial that we use, that people use as a means of their own value and righteousness. And so in this way, Ephesus was experiencing some early signs of what became known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism would be devastating to the early church over the first few hundred years. It would be a widespread heresy that would be imported into the church really fully about 20 to 30 years after this letter was written. It's the primary heresy that John would write about in his letters, which I quoted from earlier, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And one of the core tenets of Gnostic teaching is that the body is evil, but the soul is good. So starve the desires of the flesh in order to reach a higher spiritual plane. And how that's playing out in Ephesus is that the elders are denying the goodness of marriage and food. Two things that God created to partake in, created his people to partake in for his glory. But now they are teaching a denial of these things in order to be holy and mature and enlightened. Now, I think we could say a lot about asceticism and how that has evolved throughout history and how we still see a lot of signs of that today. I'm very interested in that conversation, but here's what I want to talk about this morning. Here's what I think would be more helpful. It's to see how all false teaching, in whatever form, share the same roots. The bad fruit might look different based on culture and context and time and history, but the roots of false teaching are the same. And I was helped here by Pastor David Platt down in Virginia. He frames it this way. All false teaching does two things. It denies the goodness of God, number one. Number two, it distorts the word of God. All false teaching you will be exposed to have these two things in common. And the reason is because this is what happened in the first false teaching in history. In the garden, when the serpent deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, and it's been happening ever since. Number one, to deny the goodness of God. The serpent in the garden emphasized God's power to Eve, but he minimized God's love and goodness. And when God's love is denied, then we must fill the gap to take control. If we don't feel like God is good and his call in our lives is good, then we must fill the gap to decide what is good for us. We take control. That's number one. Number two, all false teaching distorts the word of God. Do you remember what the serpent asked Eve? He started his question with this. Did God really say? Eve, did God really say you can't eat of this tree? And every era of the church over the last 2,000 years has had people distorting the word of God in terms of both belief and behavior. Did God really say there's only one way to be saved? Did God really say there is a hell if you don't believe in him? Did God really say sex should be saved for marriage? Did God really say you shouldn't do whatever you can do to rise in the ranks and to get rich so then you can further his kingdom? Did God really say he doesn't care how you work just that the ends can justify the means? Did God really say that if no one gets hurt and if no one knows then it's not really that wrong? Did God really say? I wonder if you would take a moment this afternoon or this week to consider where is the enemy asking you, did God really say? He's saying it to all of us every single day. Where is he asking you this week trying to distort the word of God? Have you thought about that? All false teaching shares the same roots. And so in Ephesus, self-denial wasn't the problem. 
right? We're called in many ways to deny ourselves. Jesus says, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. So it's not the fact that self-denial is the problem, but here's the key. It's self-denial in order to secure your own salvation. It's taking it into your own hands. It's taking the focus off Christ and what he has done on our behalf, and then putting the focus on ourselves and what we can do in order to be saved. It's about control. And when the focus is on us, the drift is in play. The drift begins. And it's only a matter of time when drifting turns into departure from the faith. So we got one left. We got to go to number three. We've seen the threat of apostasy, the reasons for it, apostasy. Now let's finish with number three, the defense against apostasy. Hopefully at this point you're hungering for this. What do we do with this? This feels hard. This feels big. This feels difficult. How can we defend against departing, departing from the faith? We know it is the work of God that sustains us. It is the work of God that keeps us. But a key means that Paul reveals here that God uses to defend against heresy and drifting from the truth is one word. Remember one word. Gratitude. It's simpler than you think. A means that God will use in your life to keep from departing from him is gratitude. Verse 4, for everything God created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Gratitude, the more you think about it, it slices in multiple directions. Here's what gratitude does. Here's how defensive it is. It defends against an unhealthy denial against what God has created. And it defends against an overindulgence in or over-reliance upon what God has created taking a gift and turning it into a God, like marriage or food or something else. Gratitude defends against that. And, that's not all, gratitude defends against just thinking, taking things for granted. How often we can just start to take things for granted and our eyes come off God and onto ourselves. And we start thinking, we deserve this. We worked hard for this. And the drift begins. But daily gratitude towards God for who he is and what he has done is not just recommended for the believer. It is vital if you want to remain a believer. It is vital for everyone who's going to grow in Christ and remain in the spirit and finish well living for the glory of God. In this way, gratitude is a core marker of daily worship. Uh, so let, let me show you one example before we wrap up. Um, most of you know in practice, I imagine, or many of you do, on some level, the act of praying before a meal. Perhaps you grew up in a home that has done that, and you've continued that in your life and within your family. Perhaps you did not uh, grow up in a family that did that, and become, upon becoming a believer, you had to learn, like, oh, Christians do that. Uh, we're supposed to pray before meals. And it is, I think, a wise and widespread practice amongst believers across the world is to pray before you eat. Why? Where did that come from? It's right here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. It traces back to this verse in the New Testament. And throughout the early church, there is much written in the New Testament. There's much written there about food that is clean versus unclean. And there's been so many debates and divisions amongst a lot of these churches in the New Testament that Paul and other writers were constantly writing against, was constantly addressing that these believers were fighting over food. And what can they eat? And what should they not eat? And so in nearly every letter it comes up that Paul writes. And here is the decisive statement that all food is lawful to eat because everything created by God is good. 
And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with what? Thanksgiving. So, let me encourage you. Every time you pray before a meal, as routine as it might feel, as uh, ritual as it might feel, as awkward as you might feel praying before your kids or other people, like, oh my gosh, I have to pray before a meal. For how many times do your kids just pray before a meal and they just say thank you for 20 things straight and then say amen? Know this in all seriousness, that every time you pray before a meal, you are defending against apostasy in your life. You're defending against the threat of apostasy in the lives of those around you. Because departure from the faith often follows the absence of gratitude towards God. Let me say that again. Departure from the faith often follows the absence of gratitude towards God. And once you stop being grateful to God in all things, it is just a matter of time before you're going to walk away. So keep praying before meals. But know this also, you don't need to limit your gratitude for God's grace in your life for mealtime. You can do it all throughout the day. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, he wrote this. He, he was an author um, over in England 100 years ago. He wrote this in an unpublished journal. So this was not published after he died. Going through his journals, he wrote this. And so as he writes this dialogue, he's saying this to himself. Note that, and we'll have the quote up on the screen. He says to himself, you say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play in the opera. And grace before I open a book. And grace before sketching painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. Daily gratitude is a key means that God uses to keep you in the faith. And so as we close, again, Ben, keep coming back to you, your first Sunday at Grace Church. Can I encourage you with this? On the first Lord's Day that you gather with this church, that God has called you to shepherd and teach and encourage and, 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 and show them what it is to follow God, can I encourage you to show us what it is to be grateful? Show us what it means to be grateful. For in our gratitude towards Christ, we will, by the grace of God in us, be found secure in Christ on that last day when we come before the Lord. And of everything we can be grateful for, remind us that above all, we can live out out of the gratitude of our salvation. For God has revealed the mystery of godliness to us, sending his only son to take on flesh and by his death deliver the death blow to death itself. That is what Christ has done on the cross. He said goodbye to death. He made death a lie for those who believe in him. And our gratitude rooted there will flow out. And by his resurrection, he de declared victory over that grave. And he gives assurance that through faith in him, we will never be put to shame. We will never depart the faith. And we will play a part in showing the world around us that same hope in which we believed is available for those who all who look upon the Lord. What a calling. What a joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we, we thank you, Lord, how it, it shows us the reality of life, Lord, in a fallen world, that some will depart. And Father, it shows us the hope to defend against it. I pray for all those who might be anxious this morning, who might be struggling with the assurance in their own faith, let alone others in, uh, around them in their life, Lord, that you would 
fix their eyes upon you. That as we're about to sing, Lord, that they can affirm wholeheartedly that you are enough. Father, your son is enough for us. And we are found secure in him. And nothing will snatch us out of your hand, Lord. Work in us. Work through us. For that is a message this world needs to hear. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.